Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, gorgeous people, and welcome to the Yes Means Yes show, where the personal and the political get intimate. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and every other week I'm joined by one smart and provocative guest to discuss sex, sexuality, and or sex-related current events. And boy, howdy, do I have an amazing guest for you this time. I know I say that every time, gentle listener. Um, But seriously, I have with me today Jansen Wu, the executive director of GLAAD, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, which literally just won us marriage rights at the Supreme Court. Um, And we're going to talk to him about that as well as a lot of sexy stuff. Jansen, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on. Uh, So you are seriously the baller of the moment, are you not? (laughs) You must be feeling pretty good about yourself. Can we start there? And I feel lucky to be amongst them all. Um, But certainly this has been a a banner year for GLAAD um, and um, many of our victories, not just the marriage victory at the Supreme Court. So I feel like incredibly fortunate to be leading this enormously wonderful organization right now. So I'm going to indulge in some curiosity and then we'll talk about, you know, more of the amazing work that GLAAD does. What was it like to be there and hear the decision come down? Uh, It was quiet and intense and uh, historic. Uh, I mean, you could hear a pin drop in the room while Kennedy was reading the decision, everyone hanging on every word until he finally said something like, you know, uh, marriage has been strengthened by both continuity and change. And once he heard those words, he knew where he was heading, and it was just just incredible. Um, And then after that, what you heard were not just his words, but sniffles and, and tears um, and breathing and sighs. Um, it was really a very visceral, incredible moment. Oh, my God. It really was. I mean, for all of us, I was at home with my partner and we were, you know, watching the, you know, SCOTUS blog and I, everyone I know was, was hanging on it. Did you have a good feeling going into it or did you feel like it could go either way? Uh, I felt good going into it. I think many people did. Um, you know, there's always questions as to what the opinion will say, who will have written it, will it be 5-4, 6-3, 
Um, in the end, uh, I don't think the outcome was very different from what people expected. Justice Kennedy wrote a beautiful opinion that I believe and hope will extend beyond marriage um, in the ways that it speaks about the equal dignity of LGBT people um, in all areas of their lives. Um, and so I think there's a strong foundation for us uh, to build on um, many victories going forward. Tell me what you mean by that. What are you hoping that this decision will get applied to? Well, when you think about, I mean, the case was about marriage, um, but when you read the opinion, it really about, is about how there is no good reason for our government to treat LGBT people any differently um, than anyone else. And so here he's applying it to one of the most challenging areas to apply it to, which is marriage, which is one of the most protected and quote-unquote sacred institutions in our country that people feel such so strongly about. And so, you know, by implication, if you can't treat LGBT people differently in marriage, then how do you justify treating them differently um, in every other area of their lives, in education, in housing, um, in um, health insurance and access and whatnot? And so I think, you know, I hate to use the term trickle-down, but I think there is a spreading out, perhaps, effect um, from this decision um, where recognizing our equal dignity as people um, in this very important area of society um, must include every other area of our lives as well, too. What do you think? I mean, I, among, among other people, thought that Kennedy's decision was in some ways very conservative in that it really was elevating marriage as the ideal state. Um, what did you think about yeah, that? For sure. I mean, you know, there's articles out there just, you know, even wondering and thinking about some of the single justices signing up to this opinion that really made single life sound so miserable. It did, didn't um, it? Yeah, you know, I think that is, um, I think that was, that was some unfortunate language in the opinion. Um, we certainly... Um, uh, know um, and appreciate how families come in all shapes and sizes um, and that um, a family is not defined by marriage um, uh, nor uh, any specific um, configuration. Um, and, you know, I think Kennedy's opinion uh, was very focused on just marriage in that way. Um, but if you expand, if you look at the other language in that decision about the equal dignity of LGBT people, that's the language I'm focusing more on, um, as opposed to the ones, uh, I guess, talking about, you know, lonely single people falling asleep in their beds at night <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> somehow keeping right. ourselves warm. Somehow, yeah. somehow staying alive. <laughs> Without the blanket of marriage over us. Um, yeah, and I think that is actually, I mean, it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's incumbent on us as a community to ensure that everyone in our community has health care, not just those who are married. Every single person um, can be protected at the end of their life, not just those who um, have uh, spouses who have automatic rights to make decisions, to end-of-life care, whatever else. I mean, there's just a way, an opportunity for us to really think expansively about the safety net and how it has been constructed so much around marriage. And now, um, what are the ways to really think more expansively? Well, and that is actually what spurred me to ask you on the show, which is that you wrote this wonderful piece for Huffington Post about talking about the fact that gay people actually have sex with each other. 
Um, <laughs> Unless you're married. <laughs> and how that gets left out of a lot of our conversations in a kind of bid for respectability politics. And I know, and you know, and I know you know, that there's been a lot of conversation for years, uh, years and years about why marriage was the goal of so much of our movement's resources and attention. Um, and if that was the right strategy, what was getting left out when we pursued that strategy. And I do think to a certain extent, sort of asking folks to deal with the fact that like, even though they feel icky about the fact that we fuck, like they have to, like, we still get to have rights, right? <laughs> like sort of <laughs> erasing that in order to make it palatable to, for us to have our rights, I think has come at a cost. And, and that's part of what your piece was about. Can you tell me what you like, why did you decide to write that essay now? Well, I wanted to, I mean, there was two parts of the essay. The first part actually talked about how um, uh, the legal protections against sex discrimination have been and should be used to protect lesbian and gay people because ultimately um, you cannot uh, take into account someone's sexual orientation without taking into account their sex. Right. Um, it's just intrinsic in that, um, in that understanding. And so we cannot separate someone's sex and really, if we want to be more precise, I guess sex slash gender, um, from their sexual orientation. And that's also true for our trans identities as well, too. So that's the first part of the essay. And you know, the reason why I wrote that was because we got an amazing decision from the EEOC, which is the Equal Employment and Opportunities Commission, which enforces our countries, our uh, employment discrimination laws. And they had just issued opinion clearly stating that gay and lesbian workers are protected under sex discrimination protections. Was that GLADS doing also? Uh, that case was not ours, but we actually just filed a class action lawsuit against Walmart um, just a, a month ago on behalf of uh, Walmart employee Jackie Cody, uh, who denied spousal health insurance benefits for her wife, Dee, at the time they needed it the most. Um, Dee was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, with ovarian cancer, and was uninsured, and they racked up uh, over $150,000 in medical bills oh due God. to Walmart's discrimination. And, you know, the argument that we made was that this was sex discrimination because if Jackie were a man, she would have gotten the benefits. But right. because she is a woman, she was denied. And this is a really important legal theory that we are trying to advance in the courts as we also hope to pass comprehensive protections at the federal level through Congress. Um, but we're not willing to wait because people are being discriminated against today. And so we need to win those cases today. So that was the first part of the argument, or the essay, and I thought that was a really good opportunity, both because of the pun as well as to um, talk about a related issue, which is why is there still continuing uh, discomfort and prejudices, biases against um, LGBT people, and specifically folks in same-sex relationships? And so um, what I wanted to really drill down to is that much of this still comes down to our discomforts around sex, and in particular, uh, discomforts around gay male sexuality. And this was based um, off of a case actually that GLAD worked on maybe two or three years ago, where there was um, this uh, gay male couple 
that was not married, but they're going through um, a separation. Mm -hmm. And the separation was very messy, and it, went through the, it was going through the courts. And not only did it have to deal with all the divisions of property, whatever else, but they were also making these accusations against each other um, when it came to uh, some... Uh, uh, sexual assault um, and other types of injuries, um, like sexual humiliations, whatnot. Uh, the details of the case are actually a little too complicated to get into, but basically one of the partners was accusing the other partners of um, forcing him to um, participate in sexual acts um, that were coercive and humiliating. And the other partner, in his defense, said, well, this isn't true at all because um, you have engaged in these sexual acts plenty of times with other people I know, and you've also um, been, uh, had photographic um, photographs, uh, pornographic photographs taken of you for magazines. Hmm. And therefore and I can do whatever I want to you? Therefore I can do whatever you want. And, you, and your, your complaint that this was humiliating a course of is, it's not true because you've done this before, right? Like bringing back the kind of the victim's history. Um, and we know in the context of, you know, rape cases that that's impermissible. You can't bring back, um, you know, a victim of sexual assault to past sexual conduct um, as a defense. Um, but in this case, um, the judge allowed um, the jury to see uh. exhibits of the of the um, photos that these, this individual had um, taken of him that was in a, in a magazine, okay? And so what we did is we sent a letter to the court and we said this is inherently prejudicial to have these photographs introduced to the jury because there is such prejudice and discomfort against gay male sexuality that this will automatically turn the jury against this person. Not to mention that it has no relevance to, you know, the facts of the actual incidences that are being alleged. And I realize this is a long windup, but what I had to do for this one case was I went through all the psychological research um, that shows how society continues to have strong feelings of disgust. And disgust is a very specific meaning in, psych in psychology, um, but, you know, it's about a tense dislike or discomfort. Um, to the point of being visceral um, when it comes to specifically gay male sexuality. Um, and in fact, they would even do these psychological experiments where they would have people talk about their feelings about gay people, about black people, about other minorities in, in, in a room, and that was the control. And then they would bring that, uh, another group in um, to ask the same questions, but they would have a really stinky smell in the room while they asked these questions, right? Like a really offensive smell. And they found that just being in a room with offensive smells increased people's biases against gay people disproportionately Wow. Um, a lot of groups. And what they concluded is that when you trigger those feelings of disgust, that also triggers increased animus, uh, bigotry against gay men because of that association. So anyway, this is a really long way just to wind up <laughs> to say that... No, my listeners are super nerdy. They want the details. It's fine. Oh, great. great. <laughs> so, I mean, but the bottom line is that, you know, we, we have research showing that society has still strong discomfort and disgust when it comes to sexuality, and particular gay male sexuality, and particular anal sex. 
And that is one of the reasons why we still see so much biases and discrimination against um, LGB in particular people out there in the workplace and you know, housing and public accommodations and, and whatever else. It's not the only reason, um, but it's one of those underlying reasons. Do you think that's why marriage was a an easier or a more palatable goal to reach for because it's about respectability and is in some ways sort of a desexualized institution, which is not to say that actual married people don't have sex, but the idea of sort of settling down and becoming more respectable instead of being out and having promiscuous anal sex, right? Uh, no, I don't actually, because when we first started on the marriage movement, and I say we in the large sense, because I actually wasn't part of the movement at that time, um, talking about gay people and marriage did bring up ideas of sex, right? It wasn't easy. It wasn't palatable. It wasn't, I mean, now it seems like, oh, everyone loves, you know, marriage equality, but that really wasn't the case um, in the early days, and we had to think about ways to get people to, when they thought about marriage, not to think about automatically sex, because people don't, that's not what you think about when you're thinking about straight people getting married. You right, know, exactly. the commitment and weddings. When we first started, people thought about sex automatically. And so, yes, there was a deliberate um, effort, public education effort, for people to think about marriage in the larger context of our lives, um, and not just in this one specific area. Um, and, um, and I do think that is important, because that, that is reflected to our lives. And, you know, just going off on another tangent, you know, one of the things that I do think I would love to see um, when we're thinking about kind of, you know, sexual liberation and whatnot uh, is um, to think more expansively about what that movement looks like, right? So the marriage movement was very focused around, you know, LG, same-sex couples and LGB people specifically because that's where the legal exclusion lay, right? Mm-hmm. It only excluded same-sex couples from marrying, and that was offensive, um, and um, we had to get rid of that. But when it comes to sexual liberation, it doesn't have to be just constrained to LGB sexualities. Um, there is tons of, uh, of you know, uh, sexual practices and uh, um, and uh, uh, ways of you know having sex um, that are outside of the quote-unquote normal mainstream right. uh, that includes people who would identify straight or identify queer or whatever it is, right? Um, and so there can be just an opportunity uh, to really uh, build bridges uh, around that. So what do you think that looks like? What, what do you think the movement to get people, straight people to be less disgusted about gay sex. Like, what what are you thinking in terms of tactics? You know, I, I when I think about it, I think about back in my college days, we used to have GLBT kiss-ins in front of the, like, the mm-hmm. campus tours and sort of in-your-face confrontational tactics. But, you know, that's that's where I'm at temperamentally. I suspect you're not. <laughs> oh, no, I did it. Ralph Reed came to Harvard when I was in college, and we did the kiss-in there, too. Did fun. you kiss in front of <laughs> Ralph Reed? Oh, yeah. That's exciting. All, like, half the audience. It was fun. <laughs> um, I think that one way to do it and to start is, is I mean, I think I want to think institutionally and then hopefully cult, more broadly or culturally, but we are a legal organization, so I start institutional, institutions first, thinking about um, sex education, right? And that's something that isn't just about LGBT people. This is about 
all of our sexualities and healthy sex practices. This is, you know, you think about the reproductive rights movement as well, too. So with you, yes. Yeah. So there's so much we could do working with the reproductive justice movement to ensure that sex education is accurate and inclusive and age-appropriate, of course, um, uh, in a way that benefits everybody, not just LGBT people, not just women, not just girls, not just boys, everybody. That's a a really great idea. How do you think about going about convincing gay men that they're natural allies with, like, abortion rights activists and vice versa? Uh, Because... I mean, I get the argument. You and me, I understand what you're saying, but, like, how do you go about making the case to folks who've, like, never thought about that as an alliance before? Well, shared interest, right? Um, Right. I mean, gay men understand the consequences of uh, not having sex education. Um, You know, uh, gay black men, um, ages, I forget what ages, but, you know, something like 17 to 25 or whatever, also the uh, highest rates of infection right now. Um, And um, there's so much of that um, could be helped with better sex education in our schools. And that's a shared interest, of course, with the reproductive justice movement as well, too. Uh, so I think that's certainly one way to engage um, these constituencies. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And then I also think, you know, it's always helpful to have a common enemy um, or opponent. And here we certainly do. Uh, Oh, my God. And, yeah, I mean, on so many levels. um, And uh, and we have to be thinking about our work in coalition um, if we are going to have enough resources and uh, do it in a smart way to push back against these attacks from the other side. I know that GLAAD and... Um, many, many LGBT organizations have been doing, um, helping with the public education campaign with regards to the efforts to defund Planned Parenthood in Congress, um, and we consider that um, um, very important work to our mission. Amazing. Um, and so important right now. Things have gotten way out of control on that front. Um, but that resource question is interesting to me, you know, because so much of the GLBT movement's resources have been invested in winning marriage for decades now. You know, it, it does seem to me that one or the other thing is going to happen or maybe something in between, you know, that we 
have all these resources available now to to go after new goals um, or the philanthropists who've been funding that think, oh, we're all done and they go home and they take their money to some other movement. Um, do you worry about that at all? I think that, you know, the jury's still out and we have some opportunities um, to continue to build. Uh, I do think that the marriage movement has brought in a tremendous amount of resources to our organizations that have allowed us uh, to actually do more work across the spectrum. Uh, I know that because I did it. You know, I came on to GLAD in 2006 in large part thanks to the increased support we were getting around our marriage work. And and, and at the same time, I spent about 50% of my time doing translate work. Um, and so I you know, think that the marriage movement has been um, in so many ways uh, uh, stimulus for our movement um, in ways that nothing else could have. And at the same time, how do we continue that going forward in a sustained way? And I think a lot of people are kind of watching to see what happens with a lot of the folks who have been funding a lot of the marriage work to see if they'll be engaged in some other works. We're having lots of conversations with our supporters about it. Um, I have faith and hope in our community that we see um, all of our struggles as one struggle, um, that we see every single alphabet in our alphabet soup as part of one family, um, because I think that is the ways that we are strongest, and I do think there are a lot of shared interests. So talk to me and talk to the listeners, some of who may be wonderful philanthropists. Um, like what's next right now that we got that big win? I know that GLAD has been doing wonderful work on a lot of other issues, including really wonderful leadership work on trans rights um, on the, in the legal area um, for a long time. So I don't want to make it sound like and now you're starting from zero with a new agenda, but it does free up a lot of time and attention to think about other things. You know, what are you wanting to focus on with, with the sort of new, in the new era? AM, a. after marriage. <laughs> Got it. Um, well, the work that, you know, we've been doing before marriage and now and continue to do after marriage. You know, one great example of the trans right case, which I, I want to talk about one case that actually was, you know, <laughs> at the Supreme Court at the same time as the marriage case. Um, and which very few people heard about, which is our case in Kosalik, which is on behalf of a trans prisoner here in Massachusetts who had been fighting for over two decades to um, receive gender affirmation surgery. And uh, we won a great decision by the trial court after 20 days of trials and experts that all agreed with us that this was medically necessary care and that denying that care violated the Constitution. Uh, we got a uh, uh, wonderful opinion at the First Circuit Court of Appeal here in Massachusetts affirming that decision. And then when it went to the entire First Circuit on banc, which is a way for every single court, not just a smaller panel of three judges, uh, to weigh in, um, they reversed us. Um, and that was a devastating loss. Um, and it was... An I remember it's been loss. all over the news here for years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just, you know, taking a look at the news coverage, I mean, you can see the Ugh. extent um, of, of bias and prejudice that still exists against trans people. I mean, that's where you really see um, people's true feelings come out. And so we actually decided to um, appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court on that case. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court, just a month before 
deciding the marriage case, um, refused to, ref um, to review the case, the conflict case. And so now that horrible decision stands. Um, and so I think that is, you know, a really, I like to use that example because it really was side by side with the Aubert Chassel case at the Supreme Court and went the other way because it dealt with a trans person. Um, and we have so much still to do uh, in humanizing the trans community, similar to the ways that we did for the um, LGB community um, through marriage. Um, and so GLAD's been working hard on um, increasing uh, health insurance access for trans folk, um, accurate identity documents for trans folks, fighting for public accommodation protections for trans folks in Massachusetts and also across the board in New Hampshire. Um, there's, um, there is a lot more to do, um, but I think uh, the momentum is with us on this issue, and I'm really excited to see what comes next on trans issues. Can we do it without erasing sexuality from the equation? Can we do it without making, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm just really fascinated and sometimes frustrated with the need to play respectability politics. You know, I see it both ways. We, you know, look, we have marriage rights, right? Like you can, it's hard to argue with the strategy. And yet a lot of people get left out when you argue that because people are respectable or seem normal that we should give them, you know, like, I'm not saying that you would do that, but from a tactical perspective, like, I don't know. How do you think about that stuff? Making those decisions between, you know, that sort of true justice vision that I know that y you have and, you know, what is tactically necessary or most prudent in an individual case. Yeah, no, these are, I mean, these are tricky questions that we struggle with all the time. I mean, I'm, I think one, I think it's, you always want people when you're doing public education or when we're doing, talking about a plaintiff or a case, understand the whole person. Um, and um, and the reality of our lives and whatnot, and an aspect of that is sexuality. And at the same time, we also want to make sure that's not the only aspect that people walk away with. Sure. Um, and so I think it's always a balancing act of of making sure that the whole person, the whole family, is seen, um, and not just oh my gosh, does that guy have his hands around the other guy's? Uh, shoulders, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so honestly, from a lot of the work that we've done, it's really distracting, you know, uh, for folks, and, and beyond distracting. Um, but although, if you look on one of our cases right now, um, the behalf of Matt Barrett, who was um, fired from um, uh, uh, Catholic High School here in Massachusetts for being married, um, we had a great Boston Globe article, and front and center is him and his husband sitting next to each other, very close arms around each other, um, which I think, you know, is part of that education that we have to do. I mean, beyond the beyond those studies about um, uh, kind of discussed about gay sexuality, there's also a lot of polling that shows that even just the sight of two men holding hands makes people uncomfortable. And so, you know, the only way to get people comfortable with it is to expose it to them um, and so you know there's ways to do that through the ways the images that we choose um, and we can certainly do that um, through the public education through litigation our plaintiffs as well but maybe more on the public education framework and the media unless you know when you've got a jury or a judge is kind yeah, of what I'm hearing strategic. yeah yeah it did be strategic always the second thing I would say though is in terms of you know ensuring that we lift up our sexualities um, as whole people and in and, and, and our movement, is that 
part of me wants, again, to expand this out, not just beyond the LGBT community. You know, it's an important part of our community. Uh, it's one of the founding principles of our movement, which is that liberation aspect. And it shouldn't only be the burden, and I'm saying that it is, but it shouldn't only be the burden of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of straight people having kinky sex out there, right? <laughs> so, you know... Well, not to mention that yeah. most women know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about having sexuality policed, right? Of whatever mm-hmm. orientation or identity. Yeah. 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 yeah, so, you know, like, to the extent that LGBT people are also struggling, not just with the sexuality part, but also jobs and this and that, whatever else, you know, to the extent that the the lift when it comes to uh, sexualities and liberating sexualities and talking about it can be shared by across the board and not just the LGBT community, I think is really important. I do too, Jensen. <laughs> I know. So this is why we always agree. Which is why we always agree. Can I ask you some personal questions? Shit. Uh, I've enough that will never get me elected to a public <laughs> office. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I've known you a little bit for a long time, but I don't really know kind of your origin story in the movement. How did you come to be the executive director of GLAAD? Like, when did you become interested in this kind of work? You know, tell me how you got here. Uh, I started my public interest career as a lawyer particularly focused on domestic and sexual violence work, actually. See, um, I didn't know that at all. No, in the legal services context. And uh, it was only in 2006 when I went to a GLAD event, learned about the amazing work that GLAD does. I knew one person on the board who invited me to that event, and I just I fell in love with this organization that has such amazing people working here, and I wanted to work with those people. I wanted to learn from the people here, and I had felt privileged so they don't do that for the last nine years. Um, last year, I became executive director in December, and that was, you know, a, also a thoughtful and deliberate process for me where, you know, I thought about going to nonprofit management for a long time um, and uh, gradually got more and more responsibilities. Glad has been an amazing organization that has supported my growth um, to the point that um, uh, they supported my transition into this role. And I'll say that it's been the best decision I've made uh, so far in my career. I, I love this job. I love being a lawyer sometimes, but I also love not being a lawyer most of the time. So. I was kind of wondering, like, do you miss the lawyering part? Um, some, I miss my clients. I miss the client relationships. Um, I was telling you about uh, Jack Gee, uh, who um, is our Walmart client, and I used to work very closely with her, and, and now other lawyers are working on that important case, Allison Wright, um, and I'm not singing and talking to Jackie as much, and so I miss that. Um, And at the same time, I'm talking to a whole different segment of our community and really enjoying those interactions, having lots of conversations with donors and supporters and reporters like you and and just engaging in these these fascinating conversations about where our movement is going. And and I I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the next few years um, unfold, Um, but I'm hopeful and excited. I am also hopeful and excited, and I'm really, I've long been impressed with GLAD's focus on trans rights sort of before it was trendy. Um, and, you know, I think maybe it's overstating is it, is things. Is it trendy yet? It's maybe overstating <laughs> things to say it's trendy, but we do have, you know, Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner, and, you know, it's it's trendy. It's become a celebrity conversation, which makes it slightly trendy. But um, 
but I, I do continue to worry, like, will the resources come along? Um, the people who can now get married who, you know, maybe don't know trans people or don't know they know trans people in their lives. So I'm really glad you all are out making the, the good fight. I, I'm, I'm very interested in figuring out how to make the argument that we should be putting the same amount of resources that we did in the marriage fight into the fight for, the, for trans equality, which I really, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's absolutely the next thing. Is there any word on Enda? Is Enda dead at the moment? Uh, there, uh, Cicilline and Merkley just introduced uh, the Equality Act, which is a comprehensive bill that would add anti-discrimination protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, across the board. So not just employment, but housing, public accommodations, credit, jury service. I mean, if you can believe, we still don't even have that. Um, Wait, and how do you get discriminated against in jury service? Uh, somebody could, and this has been a, a, a historical problem for black jurors, um, you know, uh, back in the 60s and 70s until that was ruled unconstitutional. Um, and, I was, and, you know, still today for many folks, including LGBT folks, um, you know, you, it, it varies, but, you know, prosecutors usually have um, the discretion to strike jurors for various reasons or no reason. Oh, so you can get stricken based on your identity is what you're saying. Um, I'm that that is a problem that there are uh, not explicit legal prohibitions against in many states and federally. Well, can I ask you a nerdy question that circles back? <laughs> well, a further nerdy question: the EOC decision, though, that said that dis- discrimination based on sexual orientation is sex discrimination, doesn't that cover so much of this stuff? It does. It does, and the EOC EOC decision is not binding on courts. Uh, oh. it, is, um, it is influential, and we believe courts should listen to it. Um, but the EEOC, um, they, uh, they cover, it is binding for public employees, so any federal government employee. And then with regards to private employees, um, they are processing, and we encourage everyone to file a complaint with the EEOC. They've been discriminated against employment. And the EEOC will process those complaints now, even if it's a gay or lesbian employee. Um, but then the extent of their authority is to, if they think something bad has happened, is to try to come to some conciliation or settlement. Um, but they're not like a court where you they could order damages or money uh, for an employee. I understand. So, then, so, so that's not successful. If you're not able to settle at the EEOC level, your next step normally is to go to court. And the courts, there are increasing number of courts that have agreed with the EEOC, but not all. So this new bill... Um, will be obviously makes it legally binding, not just suggested from the EEOC. Yeah, but it's not going to get through the House. Uh, I don't think so either. <laughs> <laughs> not the current House. No, but you know, one even now it is a public education vehicle because right. over eighty percent of Americans don't realize that we lack these explicit protections. Um, there's a huge knowledge gap out there right now, so. One, it has the benefit of educating. Two, you have to start from somewhere and building that political support, and hopefully the tides will shift politically so that um, something as basic as anti-discrimination protections for LGBT uh, should be a no-brainer in Congress. Okay, got it. Jansen, I could talk to you for a long time, but I know you're a busy man. Um, so 
Well, well, why don't we get drinks sometime soon and we can continue? I off would the record. love that. Um, in the meantime, will you tell my listeners how they can get involved? Like, how can they best support all the amazing stuff that Glad is doing? You can uh, go to Glad's website, which is Glad G L A D dot org, just one A. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, um, Glad Law. Um, or you can follow us on Twitter, which is at GladLaw. You can also follow myself um, at Jansen Wu on Twitter. I tried to do my best. I'm still learning um, to post um, interesting LGBT-related content that isn't the usual. Um, so I try not to pile on what everyone else is doing, but I try to find some nice nuggets that you haven't heard about already. Ooh, so look for nice nuggets from Jansen on Twitter. Excellent. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and are there, you know, things that you want people to be calling legislators about or, you know, or is that all stuff on the GLAD website? It is on the GLAD website and um, you, have a, you have a national reach, so yeah. um, it's, it's harder to direct people. But I would say um, whatever state you are in. Uh, find out what your quality group is. So that in Massachusetts, that'd be Mass and Quality. Um, and see what their legislative priorities and agenda are and get involved. Uh, because uh, we're not going to be able to change the laws if we don't raise our voices. And this is like a big moment for changing the direction of the energy of the movement. So everybody's voice has a huge impact right now. Absolutely. Um well, thank you so much for coming on. If people also can find me online uh, at Jacqueline F on Twitter, that's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me on my website, which is JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find the show notes for this and all of our previous episodes at yesmeansyesshow.com. You can also email me. Please send me advice questions for future guests, ideas for future guests, um, you know, Whatever feedback, I love to hear from listeners. YMY, as in yes means yes, at JacquelineFreeman.com. Um, love to hear from you. Please get in touch. Jansen, it has been a huge pleasure. I am definitely emailing you about drinks. Sounds <laughs> good. I look forward. Thank you, Jacqueline. For yeah, until me. next time, we're wishing everybody safe and happy sex lives. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.